Well, I told you this was a unique Sunday. It is. This is the first time in 23 years because this is BOGO Sunday. Not POGO Sunday. BOGO. Buy one, get one. Right? You walk in and say, it's BOGO. You buy one, you get one free. This is just the warm-up. You know, when the rock band comes out, the feature of the night, they have a warm-up group. This is the warm-up message for the real message. It's down the line. I'm serious. You're like, no, you're not. You're, you're killing me. Well, not yet I'm not, but... And for those of you who may be uh, new to faith, Pastor Brent is quite correct. I, no matter how hard I try to kind of be chill and mellow on my messages and stuff, it just does not work. It hasn't worked in a quarter of a century, so... You know, whatever. From last week, and I'm quoting, This morning is not a lesson in politics, it is a lesson in biblical history and its application to current day realities. It affects our lives. It has financial repercussions on working families. It has safety and security repercussions on all families. It affects the conduct of those who make laws on our behalf. Laws, by the way, by which we are judged by God Almighty as a nation, yes. But those judgments, good or bad, have huge repercussions on each one of us individually, as we have seen as we've been working our way through the book of Judges. And we see throughout the entire history of man as it is spelled out for us in the Bible. Remember that whenever God's people were disciplined, they were disciplined as a group. Which means the faithful, the Hasidim in the words of the Hebrew, the faithful ones among God's people called the remnant or the remnant of God were also subject to the consequences of the unfaithful whole. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, Jesus said. Last week, I know that outlining a history of a land dispute in some little countries all the way over on the other side of the world seems utterly irrelevant to the man or the woman who's been out of work for over a year. To the husband and the wife whose marriage has been a pile of conflict for years, it really couldn't care less about what's going on in Washington, much less Jerusalem or Beirut. I understand that. Please know that I understand that. In fact, it's because I understand that that I'm starting the prequel to the sermon in this way today. The single mom who can barely cope with her children's off-the-wall behavior or the single father who's trying to balance two jobs and then weekend visitation. The two of them independently one morning decide, okay, they're, they're, they're at such a low that they're going to try something today. And they both desperately grit their teeth managing to crawl out to some church on a Sunday morning, looking for help and hope. Only to get a lesson in the ancient squabbles of warring nations instead of solutions to their individual turmoil and comfort in their personal pain. And the one place they thought they might find help and hope lets them down flat. And so they abandon that idea, convincing themselves they gave God a try. And they retreat 
to the same old place of dysfunction and hopelessness. Resigned to defeat, returning to the patterns and the same behaviors that they know. Patterns and behaviors that do not bring life and joy, but sadness and death. The late G.K. Chesterton wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been difficult and left untried. People in general, and especially people who are in turmoil, rarely, I find, honestly, truth be told, rarely want to learn to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Meaning, seeing their lives and the whole world as He sees them. Walking in the way that He walks and acting as He acts. Because that takes time and effort, and it takes submission to God's rules for life. No, much more typical is that people who give God a shot want an all-expense-paid ticket handed to them which will take them without any time and with very little effort to their place of happy land, however they envision that. But you know, Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. There's a lot in that. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Now, Jesus was actually the first one to say that. Oh, he used different words, of course. In Matthew 22, what Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, it's veiled. That's a big pregnant verse there, but it's there. So, Let's bring it home here. Take any given Sunday morning. 650 people in the aggregate of both services from every point on their spiritual journey. From pre-Christian, not even, not even there yet, just, you know, sticking their toe in the water, maybe finding out, seeing, well, let's, maybe there's something about this God thing, this Bible stuff, who knows, whatever. To the one who is, in fact, given their life to Christ, but they're spiritual infants. To the one who has a childlike faith, to one who's maybe progressed to an adolescent anyway application of what they know to their lives, all the way up to full-blown spiritual maturity in what the writer Jude in the New Testament calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And you see, what this means is it presents a huge challenge to any person ministering to any group of people of any size. And what I discovered this week, and understand that the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is my life book. And it's just dawned on me this week. But the author of Hebrews writes about this very thing. In chapter 5 and further, the author is dealing with this exact idea and his frustration shows he's trying to teach the Hebrew Christians about Jesus and about someone named Melchizedek. You almost want to say God bless you after that or Gesundheit. You know? Now, for you to appreciate this, you've got to understand a little bit about the Hebrew Christians. That's why the book is named the book of Hebrews. Because the Christians in this book, it was a a little community unto themselves, not by design. But you see, they were Jewish. They had been Hebrews. But they 
in some stretch of the imagination along that continuum that I mentioned from not even born into the kingdom yet to, you know, going on down the line. They were all there. They had left their Judaism and they became Christians. Well, the problem with that is is that they were now outcasts in the Jewish community. But by virtue of having been Jews and now they're Christians, they were also outcasts in the non-Jewish community. They were accepted by nobody. And it had everyday, real-life, practical uh, concerns and repercussions on their daily living. Because, again, they were outcasts in their whole surrounding societies. And so they were being persecuted, not the kind of persecution that we think of with beatings and dragging through streets and all of that, but they were being very really persecuted in their ability, for one, to make a living, for their ability to care for their families, again, because of their being ostracized by the surrounding communities that didn't really want much to do with them. And so here they come and they've got all this on their mind of the daily realities of what they, what they need. They're not sure about what tomorrow brings. They don't know if there will be food tomorrow for them and their families. And so now here the writer to this group of Christians comes in and says, got just what you need. I'm going to teach you about Melchizedek. The writer says in verse 11 of chapter 5, And concerning him, he's referring to Melchizedek, concerning him we have much to say. Uh, And this is his tone. Uh, It's become hard to explain. Not because he doesn't have the words. But he says, Because you have become dull of hearing. That word means they become lazy. They don't, want to, they don't want to get bogged down in all that stuff. Look, I want food on the table. I want my kids in line. I want them clothed. I want them taken care of. Melchizedek is a dead high priest. Well, maybe he was important in that era. Well, he was a dead high priest who died thousands of years before these people. And he says, you're telling us about some long-dead dude, not to quote Bill and Ted, whose lives are in turmoil, and that's your comfort and your solution? He says, look, I want to teach you. You need to be taught about this long-dead priest, but again, you you don't want to hear it. You think it's not relevant. It's not going to put food on the table. It's not going to help you be that better parent or to improve your status in the community of the outcasts. You see no immediate value here with Melchizedek, if anything at all. And candidly, the writer of Hebrews here kind of lets loose. And remember, this is inspired by God. He continues in verse 12 of chapter 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you what the author calls the elementary principles of the words of God. And initially I had expounded on this, but I had to cut it. I cut it by half. I think it will still make sense. And he ends chapter 5 with this passage, frustrated that they're not desiring to grow in a mature, lasting faith. 
They want to cut to the chase. Look, how do I get the Jews to come and sell me bread? Or how do I get the Gentiles to come and buy my bread? Or to make shoes for my children? I have the stuff to barter with them, but they don't want anything to do with us. That's my issue today. That's what's big on my plate. Don't tell me about some guy who's been dead for thousands of years. Now hear me well. Those things are important issues for sure. And the wisdom for those things do flow out of a relationship with a resurrected Savior. They're important, but the inspired writer here in Hebrews says they are things of spiritual infants. Now, don't get me wrong again. Everybody has to begin this walk of faith as a spiritual infant. We all start at the beginning. But the Hebrew Christians, you see, were plagued by a pandemic of infant Christians in long-term arrested development. And they were content to do so. If the elementary principles, as it's translated in verse 11, were the sum total of the Christian life, if, 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 if the elementary principles, if I had time to explain them, was the be-all and end-all of what it means to walk with Jesus in faithfulness, you know what we need to do as the church of Jesus Christ? And I mean universally. We need to just teach Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with an occasional toe-dipping into a tutorial by the Apostle Paul on some issues here and there. And ignore and avoid 90% of the rest of Scriptures. Okay, where is this all coming from? I was thinking on all of this Thursday morning. That's when it all came to a a bigger head. We had actually, it had come up Tuesday meeting at our shepherding team meeting. That's the meeting of the elders leadership here of this church. And we had lengthy discussion about this very issue. Because I was exercised about it. I'm I'm doubting and questioning myself and second-guessing and all of that. It came to a head Thursday morning when I was thinking on the appropriateness or the inappropriateness of spending time on a history of a land in the Middle East which I began two weeks ago and have not yet completed. I mean, it doesn't exactly speak to the hearts and to the minds of people in the places of life, which I gave a smattering of here at the outset. I understand that. And so I was compelled to do a quick review of Jesus' conversations, lectures, and his speeches with people, both public and private. I wasn't concerned with WWJD, what would Jesus do? I was concerned about WDJD, what did Jesus do? And what I found was that the people Jesus spoke to were from all walks of life. They were people who, far and away, were in a pre-Christian, so we're talking not even baby Christian, but pre-Christian place on their spiritual journey. And in doing this, I found that Jesus spoke far, far more about things that were so far beyond the immediate problems of the day for the people 
as to be seemingly irrelevant to the crowds who were listening or at least trying to. He spent relatively little time on what many Christians today want to be tutored in week after week on Sunday morning as the church gathered together comes to worship on what we call Sunday worship. But you see, followers of Christ who will persevere in good times and bad times and horrible times have to be on a growth track, which means growing beyond the direct words of Jesus. Now, hear me. This is going to sound almost like heresy, I know. Not stepping around them, not glossing over them, but going forth from that point in a deeper development of one's faith and one's application and understanding to all of life. Remember Peter's words, God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Condensing this, the perceived needs of everyone cannot possibly be met. On a Sunday morning. Impossible. Not impossible because of me. It's impossible for anyone. And one of the biggest misconceptions about the purpose of the church that truly has consumed many churches throughout the, church, the history of the church in Christendom is this idea that it exists to reach the lost, meaning Sunday morning worship together of the body of Christ. Sunday morning is about reaching the loss. <laughs> i got news for you. No, it isn't. It is not. It's far more complicated than I'm going to make it, but the two basic priorities of the church gathered on a Sunday morning in worship is worship of the living God, I just threw a token passage up there, but it's the whole theology. And secondly, it is for the equipping, the preparation, the building up of the faithful to make them, us, better equipped to carry out the Great Commission. So where do all of the rest of these very important, as I said, personal concerns and individual needs get met? Well, glad you asked. That's why we have 23, 24, 26, I lose track, of individual, uniquely designed, different studies of topic and prayer and everything else throughout central Maine, throughout the whole week, in which over 200 and some 20 adults are already involved doing precisely that. We have special women's functions and studies and fellowship times geared just for the women because of those unique needs for the women. We have the same thing through the, for the men. We had a special thing last week at the end of the service, which we do once a month for the men. Then there's one-on-one -on -one mentoring or discipleship. If you have a need and a true desire to learn God's ways for your life right now in those more prevalent and present and looming issues of your life, not to relieve, relieve the pain and the agony necessarily, but to learn God's way of living, if you don't have someone to take you through that, you call this church 
And by golly, with every breath that is in me, I will see to it that you have somebody who is willing to do that and take you by the hand and do that. Somebody did that with me for several years when I was a young Christian. Makes all the difference in the world. And finally, friendship with another Christian. Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, like iron sharpens iron, so one man or friend sharpens another. This cannot happen on a Sunday morning. We are too diverse. We have too many different needs. We are here first and foremost to worship the living God and secondly to equip the faithful to stand firm, to persevere, to live as God wants his people to live. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Oh Lord, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity. First Chronicles chapter 17. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, the Lord God speaking, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. From the American Center for Law and Justice this past Wednesday. Quoting, the United Nations has designated 2014 as the year of solidarity with Palestinian propaganda. Let's be clear about what that means. Solidarity with terror, solidarity with anti-Semitism, that means hate the Jews, and solidarity against Israel. In other words, the UN has chosen anti-Israel lies over actual historical truth. Not my words, theirs. The United Nations, still quoting, started this year of solidarity by canceling an exhibit showing the Jewish people's 3,500-year connection with the Holy Land. To make matters worse, the United States refused to co-sponsor this exhibit, afraid of offending anti-Semites. Read that, Arab nations. And the UN does all this while, believe, while being lavishly funded by you and me, the American taxpayer. Last week I took us through the history behind the turmoil in the Middle East, recapping ever so briefly. I began the historical timeline with Palestine under the rule of Great Britain. In 1917, the Balfour Declaration determined the modern foundation for the decisions of the world governing bodies which looked with favor concerning the establishment of a Jewish homeland, a place officially, legally, internationally recognized as belonging to them. 1922, the League of Nations gave Great Britain what was called the Mandate for Palestine. It was the world governing body at the time and the legal order to establish a homeland in the region called Palestine for the Jewish Palestinians was given. 
perhaps one of the most significant statements was the world governing body's acknowledgement of Jewish right to have a homeland in the geographical region called Palestine. One little excerpt from that declaration, whereas recognition has been given to the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and to the grounds for reconstituting their national home in that country. The mandate ordered a large area of the region called Palestine to be given to the Jews, but it didn't happen for reasons that you can hear in last week's message. Hitler again was beginning his genocide, his extermination of the Jewish race, which caused Jews to flee for their lives to various countries, any country that would accept them. But low immigration quotas hampered them from finding a safe refuge. They made attempts to flee to the region called Palestine. We will call it Israel, which had been given to them, but taken back very quickly by Great Britain, But their incessant efforts, fleeing for their very lives from Hitler, only infuriated the surrounding Arab nations all the more. 1938, Winston Churchill issued what were called the White Papers, hoping to once and for all lay to rest the developing hostilities between the Arab nations or the Palestinian Arabs and the Palestinian Jews. There were no Palestinians and Jews. Excerpting from the White Papers, it is necessary that the existence of a Jewish national home in Palestine should be internationally guaranteed and that it should be formally recognized to rest upon ancient historic connection. It sounded good on paper. But Great Britain needed the Arab nations as allies for the impending war that was on the horizon. And so in spite of the world legal order concerning the Palestinian mandate and giving that large parcel of land to Israel, in spite of Great Britain's own uh, ownership of the land and their obligation to the Jews concerning the homeland, they balked, they reneged in order to appease their, the surrounding Arab nations. As the world became aware of Hitler's atrocities against the Jews, Great Britain grows tired of trying to administrate and facilitate everything going on in Palestine concerning the Jews. Remember, it was still Britain's property. And they got tired of the Jewish problem, and so they go to the United Nations now. The League of Nations became the United Nations, and they give a great big package wrapped up in a great big bow to the United Nations called the Jewish problem and said, here, we are relinquishing control of it. You fix it. It's now your problem. 1947, the United Nations votes to split the region called Palestine between the Palestinian Jews and the Palestinian Arabs. By this time, though, the shape of what was Palestine had changed because 80% of it now, over those years, intervening years, had already been given to Prince Abdullah, establishing what we know today as the nation of Jordan. So there was now only 20% left of this large landmass that was open to be distributed. 
And that is what was split between the Palestinian Arabs and the Palestinian Jews who were living there. In 1947, the mandate, yellow is the Palestinian Jews' territory, red is the Palestinian Arabs' territory, and Jerusalem is brilliantly in international control. From the very first movement by the rightful owners, who were, again, Great Britain and the world governing bodies, the Palestinian Arabs have been fighting nonstop, refusing to accept any order given and make life intolerable for the Palestinian Jews, who with world acclaim, remember, with world acclaim and legitimacy and by lawful international order, are living there by one divine right. That's why I read those excerpts from the declarations. Two, they are there by the world governing body mandate. And they are there by international acknowledgement that the Palestinian Jews have the right to be there because of their history as a people in the geographical region called Palestine. All right, I know I keep repeating this theme of it being a geographical region and the Jews' history in the area, and I'm doing so intentionally because modern-day revisionist history always has the Jews as ruthless invaders wickedly kicking the poor Palestinian Arabs off their own land, which by now ought to be patently clear that that is absolutely false. May 14th, 1948 is monumental in the history of the nation of Israel, for it was then that they declared statehood. And they were recognized as such first by the United States, giving this new nation world status and legitimacy. Now let's think about what this means according to international law. As an independent nation which they were. They could purge their borders. I'm talking about their land. They could, by law, purge their borders of foreigners, meaning Palestinian Arabs. And anyone who is ignorant of the real history of this land is absolutely convinced that this is exactly what Israel did which partly explains the constant warfare between the people groups, which, if that is all true, what I just said, the solution to peace in the region of the world is for Israel to give back the Palestinian Arabs their land stolen by them, the Palestinian Jews. And isn't that what world foreign policy has been since it became their own land? The answer is yes. So this makes perfect sense. If that is what happened. But that's not what happened. Remember, it was the world governing authorities which divided the lands between the two people groups, the Palestinian Arabs and Palestinian Jews. So Israel takes their land given to them by the world governing bodies and declares statehood. And while they had every legal right to boot the Palestinian Arabs 
off their legally begotten land. They did not. It did not happen. They welcomed the Palestinian Arabs to stay in their new homeland, keeping the land that they were living on. And they gave them political equality in their new forming government called the Knesset. But all of that is irrelevant, apparently, to peace in the Middle East. Because while the godless world today sees everything in terms of geopolitical issues, now you know why I've been using that language back in the book of Judges, the root turmoil is not geopolitical, it is spiritual. As I briefly alluded to last week, going as far back as Abraham and Ishmael, when the Lord declares of Ishmael in Genesis 16, he will be a wild donkey of a man, and he will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. That was the formation of the Arab nations. That's simplifying it, but there you go. Back to 1948. Nothing has changed in the hatred of the Arab nations for the Jews. And so they tell the Arabs living now, peacefully, represented in government, living in the land of Israel, to get out, flee Israel. Why? Because the Arab nations who hate the Jews because they are Jews are going to attack them. They are going to not merely take their land and subjugate them, but by express purpose and intention repeated today in modern times... They will drive the Jews into the Mediterranean and they will exist no longer. When the war is over, which is going to be short and total, the Arab Palestinians who left the land of Israel where they were living peacefully could then move back in, not only now with their own land, but they could also have their neighbor's land, which was called Israel, and that would be their new home. Have you ever in your recollection heard anything like this in the news over all these decades of turmoil in the Middle East? Contrary to virtually everything surrounding the new revised history concerning Middle East turmoil, Israel, meaning the Palestinian Jews, did not drive the Palestinian Arabs off of their land. In fact, they didn't even drive them off of Israel's land. They left because the Arab nations were going to attack. And those who left went to the West Bank. And they did so with eager anticipation of the annihilation of the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. The Arab nations numbering 80 million were attacking Israel. 0.6 million. And yet Israel miraculously wins on the magnitude of the battles that we have been reading about in the book of Judges when God delivered Israel's oppressors against everything humanly rational into Israel's hands. What happened 
to the Palestinian Arabs then that voluntarily fled Israel, hoping for the slaughter of the Palestinian Jews. They were homeless. Now sit down. Why were they homeless? Because the Arab nations which told them to flee did not want them in their countries and forbid them to come into their own countries. Now, if somebody can find reliable history that debunks any and all of this, please, I want to know. I want truth, not poppycock. And evil is never constrained by any measure of compassion or reasonability. So what do the Arab nations do with their unbelievable loss to the minuscule Palestinian Jews? They see an opportunity to turn the world against Israel. And so the Arab nations who told the Palestinian Arabs who were living in Israel to flee, to get out of there, they kept them deliberately isolated in camps, refugee camps, tent camps of squalor, purposely not even giving them humanitarian aid the purpose of which, which they broadcast, they photoed it. You can even go online on YouTube right now and see a video of what is called the Palestinian Holocaust. It is horse-pucky. The Palestinian Holocaust was caused by the Arab nations because they said to the world, look at what these Arab-hating Jews are doing to the people they kicked off of their land. And none of it was true. We come to 1967. Trivia question. It's called the Six Days War. How long did it last? <laughs> Who's buried in Lincoln's tomb? I'll give you a hint. Never mind. All right. Israel knew. Not thought. Not maybe. Not discrepancies in intelligence. Israel knew that Syria was going to attack. They knew Syria was going to attack. Attack was imminent. So Israel launched a preemptive strike. That means they attacked first. I'll explain that in a minute. Oh, you see, Israel, they're the aggressors. That's the way it plays in the media. They launched a preemptive strike knowing Syria was going to attack. And under radar, they hit Egypt and Syria, and they knocked out the bulk of their air force. President Nasser of Egypt was petrified that they were going to get clocked by this little nation again. And so he does the only good thing that a political leader can do, and that is call King Hussein of Jordan. And trying to get Jordan now to enter the fray as their allies, King Hussein lies through his teeth. 
and says, hey, Kingy, yeah, we got this little skirmish going on here with these Jews again. And we're, uh, you know, we're just uh, just moments away from annihilating them. But it's going to get, you know, it's going to be a bloodbath here, we think. So, look, you're either for us, pal, or you're against us. Israel happened to intercept that message. Jordan reluctantly did join. And they attacked. And in the counterattack, again, miraculously, Israel captured Jerusalem, which was under Jordanian control. And they captured the West Bank. And in the south, they captured, we're talking about little podunk Israel, captured the Sinai from Egypt. And in the north, they captured the Golan Heights. So what happens afterwards now? That wasn't supposed to happen again. The status of these territories subsequently became a major point of contention, as they are in the Arab-Israeli conflict right up to today. Well, how did this all pan out, historically speaking? Regarding the West Bank, here's reality. Remember, they were attacked by Jordan. They ended up defeating them and took over the West Bank. Israel said, it's ours. It's the right of divine international law. So all you Arabs, get out of here. No, no, not, no. Israel said the Palestinian Arabs can live there. They can have their own schools there. They can have their own mayors. They can have their own police force. And they can be, in all ways, totally independent. But the territory, the one stipulation was it had to remain in the Jewish state. Why? Because Israel has to be able to maintain some military outposts there. Because if they just gave it back and they left, within six months, the Palestinian Liberation Organization and Yasser Arafat, he wasn't in charge yet of the PLO, that was two years down the road, but Arafat was in charge, he raised up the terror organization called Al-Fatah, would be right on Israel's uh, doorstep. And so if Israel couldn't have an outpost there, it would put them in an impossible situation to defend their country. Well, of course, this was unacceptable to the Arabs living there. Because, again, remember, this is not about land. It's not about living peacefully or coexisting. It is about hatred. It is a spiritual hatred of the Jewish race. They said, and they still say today, we do not recognize Israel. In other words, they could, we don't care what anybody else said. They don't exist as far as we're concerned. They're not a nation. They're not an entity. They are nothing. Well, what happened with the Sinai that Israel miraculously won as they were attacked? Israel even gave back the Sinai to Egypt. And Israel has been pressured to return land that they did not steal or even kick anyone out of. 
but they won it against all odds, and yet the world clamors for them to give it back, something that they do not demand of any other nations. Now, oh, but Israel struck first in this whole particular six days war thing. Yes, they did. Because when you saw the map up there, you see how small Israel is. Israel, as a nation, cannot endure. They would not survive a first strike. Okay? Meaning, if you're up against an army of 80 million, and you've got 600,000, and they decide they're going to attack you, you can't stand by and go, gee, I wonder if they're serious. Because if they are, then it's too late. You're done. You're gone. And so their policy was, is, and has always been, and is publicly broadcast. (laughs) Everyone in the Middle East knows this. That Israel, when they have absolutely ironclad, tight intelligence saying that they are going to be attacked, they will attack first. Which is why in years past, you know, they took out a few little nuclear reactors that were being constructed. And, so, and all those, see, it's like, oh, see, those, those Jews, man, they're just out there getting those in. No. Mossad is one of the best intelligence agencies in the world. They can't endure a first strike, so they will strike first. And everybody knows it. Let's go back to the book of Judges. Remember Jephthah and his words to the king of the Ammonites. When the king of the Ammonites said, give us our land back that you stole. Remember Jephthah says, uh, Israel didn't steal anything. We won it centuries ago when your relatives picked a fight and lost. He said, the Lord, our God, Jehovah, gave us the land just like your God, Chemosh, gave you your land. And your reason for keeping the land you are in is because your God gave it to you, end of story. And so likewise, our God gave us the land. And like you, we're keeping it. The third reason he gave the king of the Ammonites doesn't apply really to our situation directly. So I'll give the last one, number four. Israel has not done anything wrong, but the Ammonites have. And the true judge of all things will rule between you and us. Now, did the king of the Ammonites like Jephthah's course in historical reality? His reply is the same as that of the Arab leaders today. We go to Judges chapter 11, verse 28. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent them. In other words, look, don't confuse me with the facts. Some things truly never change. Global history, world history, is an ongoing story. And if we are ignorant of it, it is difficult, to say the least, to make decisions, even such decisions as to who to vote for, and such decisions which seem so far off as to be irrelevant, have impacted 
my grandparents' generation, your grandparents' generation, our generation, our children's generations, and our grandchildren's generations, and right on into history as long as the Lord tarries. I know this does nothing to get your unemployment reinstated if it's been dropped. This does nothing to pay your bills. But God has granted to us a big Bible, not just a little Bible, or be the pamphlet, so that we are apprised of all things pertaining to life and godliness. All things. Not just how to fix the broken stuff in my life so that I can live happier and healthier. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, thank you for caring about us enough. Sometimes just put the bitter-tasting medicine on a spoon, and even though we're screaming we don't want it, we don't need it, we don't like it, it doesn't stop you because you are a God of love. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.